0: I'm Anthony Walsh, and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness, and your longevity. Today on our podcast, I'm really thrilled to be joined by Mr. Rob Britton, a former professional cyclist with the Rally Cycling Team, and now a gravel privateer. Rob's love for cycling began at a young age, but it's since taken him around the world, competing in some of the most prestigious races in our beautiful sport. With an impressive list of achievements, including victories at the Tour of Utah and the Tour of Bose. Rob has become a household name in the cycling community. In 2020, when the pandemic hit, Rob took on a new challenge, ultra cycling and bikepacking. Unleashing his full, as we say in the interview, Svein Tuft. He set out on the BC Epic 1000, and in doing so, discovered another layer to his love affair with cycling. We're excited to have Rob on today to talk about his experience as a pro cyclist, his journey as a gravel privateer, and his recent foray into ultra cycling. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today.
1: Because I'd initially planned to sleep in a tunnel because I didn't want to like worry about rain, but the tunnel had like a couple rats the size of my forearm, so. It was occupied, so we just kept going. <laughs> I do some stuff with like younger riders, and one of the things I do try to get across them is creating your brand for both yourself and responses. Your because as a young rider, like if you're racing, you know these local crits and things like that, that's not going to be on Velo News or Cycling News or Escape or whatever. So how are you going to give value to these brands? It's kind of funny that's. Very similar to, uh, yeah, the progression of my career where it's, you're out riding and you're like, I wonder where that goes. And then you end up going down a road that <laughs> a road bike has no business being on. And then one thing leads to another and you've punctured both your tires and then you puncture your spare tubes and you slash a tire and then you're walking around.
0: Rob, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, glad I could make it. <laughs>
0: good to have you looking resplendent in your new kit
1: yeah yeah it's a little bit uh eastery but um you know everybody of getting candy from easter bunnies so uh no yeah thank you i'm stoked on it
0: it's got a bit of a tie-dye feel to it a bit of a renegade countercultural gravel feel
1: <laughs> yeah no we always joke um last year's kit uh was similar just a different colorway but um kind of similar tie-dye style but we joke that it's like um the Croix cans the uh yeah, sparkling water every drinks.
0: How are you adjusting to life as a gravel privateer?
1: Good. Um yeah, this year so far feels a lot more comfortable than um last year for sure. Obviously, last year was just learning so much every race, every week. Uh yeah, everything you do is on you. So, um the biggest thing I find is just holding myself back from doing more because it's so easy to just do more and more and more because don't necessarily have that structure of you know the road scene like years past
0: you still working with a coach like what's your i suppose even why i'm asking that's a shit question as i'm saying it, but more what i'm trying to get into is what's your mindset are you on a retirement lap here or are you still like no i'm a pro cyclist and i'm still applying my trade
1: um i would say last year was a bit more um I don't want to say retirement lap because these races are way too hard to just sort of float through. Um, I think last year, and I think this is very true with anybody who retires from the professional ranks, especially if you raced um, at a world tour level with grand tours, um, I think it's even more so, you get a year for free. Um, And I truly believe this, that you, after so many years of peaking, you know, in early May, in June, in mid-July, August that just is in your bones and i think with people who wrote grand tours they just you know you'd always say like guys who had five ten fifteen grand tours in the legs they just had another gear that regular people didn't have so last year i'd say i definitely floated through the year without any structured training um i tried to train a little bit here and there and like obviously i did workouts but my training plan was like i don't have a coach um I worked with Chris Baldwin for my entire professional career and that was great. And like, it was an incredible relationship. We're still friends, but at the end of my 2021 season, yeah, we stopped working together just because I wanted to do my own thing. (laughs) And structure wasn't part of it. That carried through to 2022. That year was, like I say, very much just floating. And this year I'm taking it a lot more seriously in terms of training, mostly because I can tell that The freedom of, you know, my past life, like that single pass you get for a year has stopped and now I definitely have to work for everything I get um, as far as like physiological gains or just the maintenance of like the fitness I've had in
0: the past. Are the incentives there to work super, super hard? Like, you know, on the road, it's obvious, your podium in a classic, your life is changing forever. Largely, if you're... In the Lifetime Grand Prix, if you're dicing around, obviously you need to be still a pretty good bike rider and looking after yourself to a certain degree to be finishing in top 20 in those races because they're super competitive. But you're, you're in that you know corral of the top guys. Is the incentive there to really push on? Because a lot of the way you guys are structuring your deals is brand deals rather than prize money. And the brand deals don't really disappear if you come 18th, 11th, or 7th is that messing with your mojo and motivation for training? This
1: this will sound like a little bit um, sadistic, but like I love the hustle and the grind and the suffering of like hard rides and training. The process of it all was, that was never hard for me to get out the door and do the work. It, like, you know, I knew I was going to stop racing professionally in April, I'd say probably April of 2021. And I never skipped a workout or just like went out on the beers super hard, oh, maybe at the end, but... <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I love that. I loved, and I still do. I love the process of it all of to see what I can get in my body. I think a lot of that comes from just, uh, early days. Like I, if I ever talk about sort of my, like how I came up for the sport, it was never through like this talent pool of being, you know, a special rider. it was from having to work really hard to get, um, those physical gains. So that just became the baseline of operations Obviously, you change over a career, but I still don't see myself as a super, like, talent, per se. My talent was just I could work pretty hard, and I still kind of stick to that motto. And, like, I do genuinely love riding my bike, so that makes those hard days easier. And I think, like, last year, I gave away half the prize money from the Lifetime Grand Prix,
0: so. Oh, the prize money shit. Like I, I know everyone's making this like big hoopla, and it's brilliant. Like I have the the founder of a lifetime series on the podcast soon. It's amazing that they've put this investment into the sport. Uh, but like if we call a spade a spade, the prize money shit. If you finish on the podium in a lifetime Grand Prix, break it down as to how much you make for finishing on the podium. It's not going to cover your bikes and travel expenses for the year. So people are living off the brand deals and endorsements.
1: Yeah, but I mean that's like. The lifetime Grand Prix is like, is a professional, like that's a professional sport at this level, right? It's not so much like gravel has become, you know, professional and it's become privatized in each one of those like privateers or whatever you want to call them. So if you you compare it like prize money, apples to apples to any sort of professional cycling, it's certainly not bad. Like there's no prize money at an NRC level and you start splitting that in many ways. With like your seven or eight teammates. And then at like a UCI level, it's even more ridiculous. Like, think about how much money Yumbo Bisma puts in to winning the Tour de France.
0: So you're looking at your individual sponsors like, you know, Factor, Easton Castelli, they're mm-hmm. your trade team. And you're looking at the lifetime Grand Prix as if it's the prize money payout from a race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like
1: in, investment,
0: it's because the Grand Prix
1: the joke is if you put in like 40 K to make content with somebody following your own, doing video stuff, and then you finish in the top three, it's like, it cost you 40 K to make 20 K kind of thing. And, <laughs> and, and But at the same time, it could have cost you 40 K to make zero K. Like you finish like you might be sitting in the top four for all but the last two races. And then you have shit luck um, in those last two races and get zero points. And then you go from the top five to 11th and then you get no money. So like, well, the prize money, like for sure you could be getting 5k at each race or something like that. There's also, it's definitely the best game out there as far as prize money. The gravel scene is definitely just those mass participation events. There's a lot of money floating around. You think of like the big ones, like you get three or 4,000 people at a start line and you're charging $200 per person that's big business for sure there's expenses but it's like you know it's this is like people who organize those events that's their job and so giving out like 10 grand for a win isn't like you're still going to fill it out and like the front end of that field is very much a small portion of the event
0: how do you feel about that you're going to reference the bringing a videographer around 40k for a season how do you feel about that need to create content or have a presence you know in in world tour or racing in europe it's largely good enough to be a bike rider still it's still very traditional we're still you know regrettably dominated with that sort of patrick lefevre old school european culture and you know it has a lot of drawbacks but arguably one positive from it is it lets bike riders just be bike riders for sure um
1: and i think it's it can't be measured apples to apples um, because like, I, I do think world tour and like that kind of level, like um, the European UCI, like Div one, Div two levels of racing. That's a separate category of professional cyclists versus like what we do. They don't have to do, they don't have to make their own videos because they have, you know, Eurosport taking care of that. So like there's without, I don't say, I, I certainly don't, Love it. Like, it is overwhelming because you do have to. I guess it's a sword that cuts both ways. It can make you very popular and grow your social following, which gives you more status, more hits, more hits gives you more value to sponsors, that kind of stuff. But I do, like, after spending a long time racing, <laughs> I do like the traditional where it's just sort of if you do well, you're on TV, you're getting results, and then you're valuable. Like, and that is a traditional, like, sense of European cyclists. Like, Van Art is not concerned about his Instagram account. And, no.
0: like, and you know what? It's penetrating all levels of the sport as well. Because I'm seeing even here locally in Ireland, and I'm sure this is mirrored in London, Toronto, New York, with local riders, you still do have these subsets. So you have the one subset who... Yeah, they look like a bike rider and they have the fancy panormal kit and they've all the matchy, matchy stuff, but they're not actually very good bike riders. And then you used to have the kind of cat one guys who are, you know, largely have made career sacrifices to stay at cat one and a lot of sacrifices to go with that level. They don't have the really nice, fancy, matchy kit. But they're actually still quite good bike riders. And a lot of them have, you know, experience racing in Europe and have maybe come back from pro and are now racing cat one. So we're seeing that same ecosystem that's playing out in the US, playing out in a little microcosm of itself on a smaller scale all over the world right now, which is kind of bizarre to observe. Oh, for
1: sure. Yeah, it's it's and it's interesting, too, because I do some stuff like mentoring is the right word, but. I do some stuff with like younger riders and one of the things I do try to get across them is creating your brand for both yourself and your sponsors, because as a young rider, like if you're racing, you know, these local crits and things like that, that's not going to be on Velo news or cycling news or escape or whatever. So how are you going to give value to these brands that, you know, it may not be like factor cutting them a $200,000 check, but they're floating them a dozen bikes, which is, you know, that's still a hundred grand. And so how do you bring value to that? It's like, share your story because each person has their own story. And if you can kind of be genuine with that stuff, I think that's where the value really comes in without just being like the carbon copy. Like the disingenuous stuff, I think, is where it gets a bit
0: lame. Everyone's trying to be Lachlan. Well,
1: <laughs> no one can be Lachlan except for <laughs> Lachlan um but yeah it's that's the stuff is like these are apple airpods These are the only airpods i use and i like to wear them when i'm riding with my airpods in because airpods are great it's like it's stuff like that that just sounds like shit you know but if you can go out and you just sort of like you tag castelli and you're just in the middle of this torrential rainstorm or something and you're wearing a shake dry jacket and it's just like just to simply tagging them people will see that and that's more of a genuine thing versus like you know, some of this forced created stuff which I think sometimes is just cringeworthy.
0: I have a really exciting season of gravel racing planned. Some amazing races. I absolutely can't wait for the migration gravel race over in Kenya and Badlands in Spain jumps out as another highlight. But I really don't want to slip on this podcast. I'm not going to. I'm sticking to this six days a week schedule that I've promised. So I needed to find tools to make sure that every hour I have available counts. That's why I'm super happy to partner with Bike. The Bike Adam, it's in the recording studio right beside my desk. If I have an hour free between inter- Reviews, I literally just jump on. It's removing all the friction points for me. No more 10 minute setup on folding legs, banging my knees, trying to get things to connect. It just works seamlessly every single time. The Wattbike Adam, it's also perfect for when I decide to do a Zwift race. It has crisp gear changes, 1% power accuracy, and a max gradient capability of 25%. Even on the steepest climbs over in Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm using like a custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route in Watopia, I'll select more suitable climbing gear ratio. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, I couldn't recommend this one any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever gonna need. You can now get 10% off the what Bike Adam. Just head on over to whatbike.com. They have a limited time sale running at the moment. So if you've been on the fence and you've been thinking about buying a smart bike for a while, or like me, the turbo trainer was just proving too frustrating, now is an amazing time to buy. Just head on over to whatbike.com. Now, I'm getting to a place where I'm more accepting of it I don't feel like I need to compare anymore that one is good and one is bad like it exists that there is and I've had him on the podcast he's a great guy like Corey Williams from Legion he races with respect to the level they race it it's local national it's not what Welt van Arts doing it's not what Remco's doing they're two totally different things but one doesn't need to be better than the other or one doesn't need to be killed for the other to survive. They can both live in this ecosystem. And, you know, you walk into Rafa's flagship cafe in Soho in London and Corey and Justin Williams are their flagship athletes. You know, they have, you know, Nelson Pellis at the moment, one of the best classics writers in the world. And he's a Rafa brand ambassador, but it sells more kit for them to have the Williams brothers there. And, you know, that's pretty cool. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And like those guys, they crushed it they made like what they do is cool and it's probably more relatable to a lot of people than some of the world tour stuff because the world tour stuff is like the tour de france level and like those like you know monument level like that's make-believe for 99 and percent of the population whereas like the williams they're the best in the world that crits for sure but people can still relate to that because they could, like, they could just if they have a cat one license or whatever, I could toe the line with the Williams brothers and like be right there, and it's like those guys do it upright across the board, and it's like yeah, and I think Rapid does a great job, kind of like reflecting that, and yeah, it's such a good pair, I think. So yeah, it's it makes sense,
0: and you know, there's this bubble of illusion that goes on around it as well, and you know, you're a bike rider and you can poke a hole in that bubble quite easily. But the general public's like, oh, you know, maybe if they were over in Europe, they'd, you know, win Liege a couple of weekends ago. It's like, no, like, they'd be gone inside the first 20K. <laughs> it's a different thing completely. Yeah, yeah,
1: no, it's it's true. It's like, man, especially now, holy cow. Like, yeah, those races are, there's not one, like, fiber in my body that misses doing those, like, and I I, I don't put myself in the same category as, like, even Liege, but, like, Stage races in Europe, hard races, any race in Europe now is frigging hard
0: all the time. And I don't miss that at all. Do you miss though when you you know have you've, you've plenty of success across your career and when you do win on the road, it's not just you winning, like the team shares in it. I'm thinking back to some of my, you know, w- when I was riding full time, some of my fondest memories on the bike and they're actually not me winning races. They're like a teammate winning and it was the joy that it brought to everyone, to mechanics, yours, directors, the whole staff are all part of this shared celebration. Do you miss that? Or is it replicatable in gravel?
1: Uh, it's definitely not replicatable for sure. No, I, I do miss it. Um, you hit the nail on the head. It's really special. Um, like when you win, everybody does win. Um, or when your teammate wins, like you do feel, especially like if you felt you had a significant part in that, um, I, and I can think of a few different experiences in my career. Um, I, probably one of the most more memorable ones was um, when McNulty won Tour of Sicily uh, in 2019. the whole team um, really came together and looked after him and I know like I was always like trying to give him the support I wish I would have had like through my career and like, yeah, that was really special and like he crushed that race and it was really cool to be a part of that. Um, And then the flip side of that coin, there's nothing that hurts more than like if the team's doing well and the team loses and, you know, you were a major part of that loss because you didn't do your job. And that actually like, like if, if you have accountability and you like have respect for your teammates, like you can understand how much that sucks. So on both ends, like the highs and the lows, I think are pretty grand on a team thing because there's so many more people involved in that success or that failure. Whereas in the privateer world, I think, yeah, like it sucks when you have a bad day, but it's just you, like, you know, maybe people have empathy for or sympathy for you, but yeah. And the same thing with your success. It's like, you know, you go back to your, like, I don't have any staff or anything like this. Like some people maybe have, um, but yeah, you go back to your truck or your tent or your Airbnb and then you just kind of maybe have a beer or something back up and go home.
0: Okay. So do you think then that the motivation needed to perform in a team environment and the motivation needed to be a successful gravel privateer, they're not totally transferable because you have that external motivation when you're in the team environment. I don't want to let the team down. And that's it's a negative motivator for you. But you don't really have that then. You need to independently motivate yourself For every single race, you know, I I know I've pulled out some performances when, you know, we're in this culture now of Zwift and everyone's on watts per kilogram, but there's times in races like you're five, six, seven days deep into a stage race, a job just needs to be done. And I can't be like, oh, I can't hit this watts per kilogram. It's like a, a GC rider needs to be in the front 10 heading into a climb. It doesn't matter how you get them there, if it's, you know, it needs to happen you can draw strength and you can draw motivation from somewhere you didn't know you had beyond fatigue when you have this sort of the prospect of letting someone down and that sort of disappointed look of your teammates or your directors face across the table at dinner where you know you haven't done your job is it difficult then when you move into gravel or do you need to motivate yourself differently when you don't have that same negative motivator
1: yeah it's funny you said that. Um. One of the best pieces of advice I ever had in my career was uh, from a director, Michael Creed. And he said to me, um, guys, sometimes it doesn't matter how you feel. You just need to get the fucking job done, period. And it's, it is that simple. And I, you know, I carried that. That was early on um, in my career. I got that advice. And it's so true. Um, so for me personally, like I've, I was always internally motivated. I didn't need um, that external motivation. For sure, it helps. But it's it's never been... Something that like is this like flips the switch, like when I, I show up to the line, I'm getting to race with everything I have all the time. But I, for sure, I think some guys are very much that person. Yeah, I find like certain rider types, if they have someone kind of like pushing them, they'll be a lot more fired up than um if it's just if they're just left to their own devices.
0: Without the need to you know, use the team bike that you're given and you have that freedom to go and approach individual sponsors. I know we're on the same bike this year. I absolutely love, I'm on the Factor Ostro Gravel and the Factor Ostro Road and I absolutely love them. They're the bikes I would have bought if I was actually spending my own cash on it. So it's cool to be able to actually ride them. But is that, you know, a real, is there a real joy in that where you get to approach sponsors that have cool products? Like I know you're on Classified's rear hub, like that's just badass like i'm still not entirely sure what problem it solves but it's just badass it is it cool getting to work with brands like that it,
1: it is yeah man that's like one of the coolest parts of my job is um you build these relationships over like for me over a career right and um i really really value the relationship i have with all of my sponsors like it's really exciting and like special to me that i have a personal relationship with like rob who's you know owner CEO of Factor Bikes and like you know for a while he was like visiting Victoria and we could go for you know a bike ride and like you know that's the Astro is it is the best bike I'd ever ridden I could tell before even like rode it like I put the bike together and just putting the wheels in, you can just tell the quality in these bikes and you know same thing with you know Castelli like, working with Steve who's a main guy and North America for branding, like Schwabe, same thing. Like their office is a 10 minute ride for me in Victoria and that's the head office for North America. So these brands, it's not just, um, you know, a business thing with me. Like I try to have like a very good personal relationship with all of them because I really value it. And like, yeah, I didn't just go shotgun approach and like I'll take SRAM or Smith or, you know, Jiro or Bell or, you know, whatever, like, whatever, whoever comes back to me with the best offer, I'm taking that. It's like from the get go, what I did was target specific brands and specific companies.
0: Um, it's not like the scene out of Starsky and Hutch where he's like, Hey, you like blondes or brunettes? Your mom's like, uh, I guess blondes. And he's like, Good, because I'll take anything I can get.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, for me, it was like very much like, you know, brunettes. Like, and I like, and I, I've been so happy with kind of that model that I went with, um, you know, all of my brands save for, uh, obviously like the main partner, a factor coming on from mountain bikes to everything across the board this year has just been a carryover from 2022. Um, and most of my brands are now, uh, you know, on multiple year deals. So they're happy with me. I'm like extremely happy with all of them. And it just allows us to like really solidify those relationships kind of moving forward. So yeah, it's, it's been so good.
0: I had a chance to use uh, Classified briefly. I was over in Girona and there was one of the bike festivals on and Eva, who's no longer with Classified, yeah. uh, reached out to me. She's like, hey, I'm in town. Do you want to come and? I'll come over to you and check out. You can check out the hub. And I was very hungover because I just finished like I rode Badlands then finished Badlands and rode like a two and a half thousand kilometer bike packing trip so we <laughs> went from Granada up to Biarritz and across to Girona and we were bivvying and stuff on the way and it was that's my style so it was good fun it was proper uh, Sven Tufts playbook like it was it was some hardcore stuff but when I got there and I used this classified hub I was like too hungover to contemplate what was going on I could only just say it was witchcraft I'm like what how is this possible what's going on
1: yeah no it's witchcraft they just Forged it, like, in the heart of, like, the den of Merlin and, yeah, <laughs> magic came it's, out.
0: It's like I have gone to big ring to small ring, but nothing's happened. It's like, how, what? How has that happened? They've sent a signal to my muscles. This is just bizarre.
1: Yeah, it's, I've, like, watched sort of the diagram of, like, how it all works. And then I try to, like, verbalize it to people. I don't have a degree in engineering, so basically it just rotates at a different ratio. <laughs> like... Stuff happens inside.
0: I guess my concern with it is, as cool as it is, I think it's better suited for gravel at the moment than it is for road. Because if you puncture in a road race, you're never getting the classified rear wheel off your neutral service.
1: No. Um, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, yeah, at a professional level, it's it's a different game because you just get your you get service from your team, and if you do get like I have done races before with just an eleven thirty four cassette, like. I wanted to use because you're obviously pinned on with like whatever rim you have the classified built to. I have it built to um an EC90 AX, so like a gravel rim. So I want a deeper one. So I had the EC90 arrows, which doesn't have a classified on it. So I have done races before that are just a 50 ring in the front and the 1134 cassette in the back. And if you're motivated enough, you can make that work.
0: But, uh, <laughs> if you're motivated and you have a decade of pro racing in your legs.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, I spent, like, I was on Stram my whole career, so I spent a pretty big chunk of my career, like, avoiding the use of a front railer at all costs, so I spent a <laughs> lot of time cross-chaining as it is, so I'm pretty comfortable in the, uh, yeah, cross-chained big and big, but, um, yeah, that's, that's for sure a potential downfall, but, yeah, I, I would agree on the gravel side of things, and now the mountain bike side of things, for an off-road use, oh, it's just brilliant, because You could list a bunch of stuff, but, like, just the range you get now, plus the lack of contamination and chainsack you're going to get from not having a two-by system, that alone is pretty exciting.
0: I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Chetelis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment. But they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labor markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor, and make sure you get the very best possible experience. I want to sort of selfishly pick your brain. Uh, I'm heading over this year, the first time I've raced mountain bike. I'm going to do Leadville towards the end of the year. I said I break out of my little European sandbox and come over and see what all the hype is about over your side of the pond. And you've historically performed super well at altitudes, you know, Tour de Gila overall, Tour of Utah overall. What's the altitude protocol for someone coming from sea level to race Leadville?
1: I'd say probably the biggest thing is, um, respect the altitude and taking note of like any times you've been at altitude in the past, usually your body will give you some pretty good clues historically. So if you've been riding up in, and I don't know how high the Alps and the Pyrenees go, but usually most people will find markers around like 2000 meters. That's like a pretty cut and dry. Like they'll either feel okay or they'll feel shit.
0: When and and you say feel shit, what does that feel like? It's just, is it noticeable lack of power? Is it increased heart rate? Or are you digging into more complex metrics like heart rate variability or sleep data?
1: Yeah, well, you're going to sleep like shit if you're sleeping at high. That's, um, most people, that's just normal. Um, even myself, like I was always graded at altitude. I always slept like shit over, over like 2,000 meters, 6,000 feet. Even like 5,000 feet. I just like use feet, uh, spending time in Boulder. But um, yeah, it's like my sleep is poor like you just have less oxygen content um so you just you usually sleep pretty light yeah we can get into hrv and like um blood oxygen but that's just like you start wearing all sorts of things um <laughs> yes yeah, so simply it's like you your heart rate will go up your power will go down and your perceived effort will increase um for most stuff and if you do maximal efforts like for example like if we just look at leadville specifically the way it starts is you start up a relatively short and hard climb straight off the gun and it's mountain bike race. So you're going pretty much flat out and you're, I mean, it starts at I think 3000 meters or something like it's quite high at a base. So if you go anaerobic at that elevation and you're not acclimated, it will take you a really long time to recover like an hour of riding easy. Sometimes if you, you know, you went really deep for like eight or 10 minutes so I would say like just starting slow or going early. If you spend like a week there before, that's kind of, I'd say the minimum for just acclimating. You're not going to get any training in in that time, but. So what are you doing? Just easy rides? Yeah. You just like keep it like zone two and, you know, three, four, five hours kind of build up to that. Um, Hydration super key. Uh, tend to burn more carbohydrates when you're up high like that. So just like monitoring your uh your fueling is important like even more so um and the day of the race is just like you don't want to see these efforts doing this you want to see like you know spiking up spiking down um you kind of want to keep it as consistent as possible uh because altitude is super unforgiving when it comes to recovery like you never want to think if you're thinking of like driving a car just try to keep it in like third gear and like you never want to be punching it to fourth to pass someone and then back down to second to slow down and then back up to you know Fifth, like for a while and like redlining it you kind of want to keep those routes nice and smooth
0: um, we're seeing so many of the world tour lads now as uh, altitude is just such a staple part of their training now it's like they hit a race at sea level like we see in Remco for Liège he was at altitude comes down does Liège goes back up to the top of the volcano again I guess he's in Mount and in Tenerife Mm-hmm. was that something you used and what's your experience of training staying high training high and then coming back down for sea level events what do those protocols look like
1: yeah it's like i mean that was a huge part of my career i was probably doing it as early as anyone you know t- 2010 is when i started doing altitude camps um and then we just i'd say we refined it but really we just simplified it um because yeah for me i like I think Remco initially struggled with altitude stuff. I mean, he's quite young. So like, how would he have experience doing it? But, um, I was always, that was the one thing I had a natural gift at. So I didn't have to get crazy to try to figure out, go up high, go down low, blah, 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 blah. But I do find if you're going to be racing high, it is best to do high training. So if you're doing stuff over 2000 meters, it's best to do efforts and like sleep and stay above 2000 meters. But you can also use altitude for a sea level thing, um, and really kind of give you like supercharge yourself for sea level stuff. Like it is beneficial on so many levels. My like, guys will stay at altitude, like in Andorra and race almost exclusively at sea level. So it's, you're not just staying up there to get better at altitude. You can stay up there to give yourself, I feel like go down the rabbit hole at all, of all the physiological stuff. But yeah, there, there is a pretty cool effect. Um, to being up high, coming back down low, because it does give you like almost another gear. Like we saw on Sunday with Remco when he went, you know, I, he's already so good. But yeah, it was like he just just on another level because Pidcock is obviously flying. And yeah, so altitude does give you that effect. And then now you'll also see, I'm sure we'll see in the Giro, once it goes over 2,000 meters, you're not going to see a dip in performance. He'll so he'll be just fine. And that, that's where sti- sleeping up high really makes a difference.
0: Obviously you're not inside Quick Step, so we're just kind of speculating on what his protocol is. But if he's going off there for like two weeks training, or if somebody's going off for two weeks and they haven't had a lot of altitude exposure, would you recommend they're riding easy for the first week? Or are they or are they just diving straight into doing hard efforts up there?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, they're sleeping high and then they train at a variable like altitude, right? Um, that's the neat thing about Tide. You can You're always sleeping, I think, at like 7,000 feet or something. I can't remember exactly what it is. But um, you can do efforts down low because you descend off the volcano, but then you kind of do efforts all the way up. So you can do them at a bunch of different altitudes. So you do get the benefit because it's really hard to do anaerobic stuff at altitude. So for, for them, like they wouldn't necessarily have to start off training super light. They could just do efforts down low and then back off the intensity as they kind of got higher up the volcano. And then that's just going to build fitness and acclimation just through the, like the recovery and sleep up there. The biggest thing is just monitoring the recovery day in, day out. But yeah, two to three weeks is kind of, three weeks is like the ideal amount of time if you're prepping for like a major event. When we did it, it was like anywhere between 18 and 24 days was kind of the ticket.
0: Will you still look to utilize altitude training to run into some of your target events this year in the Lifetime Grand Prix?
1: (laughs) Oh man. I want to stay married, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is the problem, isn't it? Who was I chatting to? I had Daryl Impy on a few weeks ago. And Daryl, I think he's 38 or 39, so he's roughly your vintage last year in World Tour. And he was saying that, he doesn't think the physical process of aging actually stops him continuing. It's more the life baggage you accumulate. And baggage is, you know, quite a derogatory term for his family. <laughs> it's the stuff you accumulate, like relationships, responsibilities, that makes it difficult to do what you need to do to still be competitive. When Remco at 18, 19, or wherever he is now, can, you know, head off to Toyota for a month. And there's not a lot of consequences there. He can FaceTime the girlfriend and all is good. It gets more difficult when you have kids.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we don't have kids, but I I mean, I've been doing this for I don't know a long time now, and um, your priorities change and your values do change. Like, I really enjoy my life, and there's a lot of stuff I want to do in it still, and in cycling and in like off the bike stuff, and spending two to three weeks, you know, I always call it going down the rabbit hole. Um, where you're just like you're locked up and you're doing your thing you're the blinders on and that's just that part of my life has come and gone I have a ton of respect for the guys that do it I know guys like Keegan and Finsty, like that's their bread and butter is they do these hard camps in Arizona they're like and, and that's where they are in their career is hyper focused and like an all in mentality where I don't personally have that I'm going to do the best I can with the resources I have, you know, training here in Victoria, if I can sneak away to California a bit. But yeah, I think the days of me using altitude to prep for races are probably behind me as much as I enjoy, you know, going down to Colorado. Like I loved it down there. Um, it's just, it's too much of a sacrifice of all the other stuff that I've, you know, stepped back from racing professional road for, you know, I stepped back from that because I wanted to do things and be a part of, you know, be a part of my, relationship in person be a part of like you know my friends lives in person have these in-person memories versus like you say so much stuff on facetime
0: well that is the beauty of gravel to an extent that it's not as absolute performance driven it's multifaceted and there's a lot of there's a lot of appreciation for people to have it a bit more balance than them. like lachlan's not the best bike rider in the world you know maybe that's shattering the illusion for some people that are on YouTube, but he's not. There's a lot of world tour guys who are at a higher level for him. Is he a very likable, cool lad that's brilliant on camera and can tell stories and can also ride his bike pretty darn well? Yeah. And he's, because of that, he's one of the biggest stars in the sport at the moment.
1: Yeah. fully. Like, yeah, Lachlan is, and I've known him my entire career. Um, I remember racing him at this, like, I think Air Force Classic or something in Colorado Springs in one of my first races with Bissell, I think 2010. And I'm like, who is this child? I'm about, you know, skinny <laughs> as he is now. And, you know, barely said a word. Um, and then he proceeded to, you know, drop me and everyone else. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Like this guy's like 13 years old. And, you know, since then it's like, I went through periods like, cause you say Lachlan is very good. And I remember like, I had this like, period where like villainized people made it easy to race them and it's like lachan was like one of those people because i'm like oh this guy has so much talent and he just wastes it you know doing all these stupid things but he was just ahead of the curve like and lachan very much marches to the beat of his own drum and yeah as you get older and like obviously like my relationship and perception of lachan has changed like over the years like he's a buddy of tons of respect for what he does and like now i see like kind of the other side of that and the pure joy you get just from kind of doing your own thing and uh like you say he's he's such a likable character that it's just addicting to watch like these adventures that he does like i i perfect example like gb duro like that was one of the like i'd say that was a catalyst in me being like oh like let's do some weird shit like i don't know i could do that that looks like it's too much but something like that would be kind of cool
0: but were you not teammates with Svein for his last year in Rally?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was teammates with him on Rally. And then, um, yeah, we're good mates. Like, um, just your life, we never get to hang out, I think, as much as either of us would like. But whenever we get the opportunity, um, I'll go to a way to like, do a cool adventure with, uh, with Svein or Like,
0: Svein's the OG, is some cool shit. Like, it's Svein's the, the version of Lachlan, but the camera's not on. If the camera was following him, he'd have a 100 billion followers.
1: The camera's following him. The cameraman would be dead. (laughs) (laughs) He wouldn't. He wouldn't make it. No, like you're exactly right. Yes, I mean, like he does not care about the perception of anybody. He's always done his own thing, and his own thing is like he wrote the book on these crazy adventures. Right? Like I think quite literally, he's writing a book. But um, yeah, it's again another like hugely more like inspirational character for me doing a lot of these things is Swain and like what he
0: did. I had Mitch Docker on the podcast and he was saying over in Girona, he'd go training with Swain occasionally. He's like, you don't want to train with him that often. He's like, because you meet up with him on a Tuesday morning for a spin and you don't get back until like Friday lunchtime. And it involves like you're hiking up the side of a cliff, climbing barefoot with your bike strapped to your back. And you're like, I was down for a two and a half hour easy ride. How has this happened?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's... it's kind of funny. That's very similar to uh, yeah, the progression of my career where it's you're out riding and you're like, I wonder where that goes. And then you end up going down a road and <laughs> a road bike has no business being on. And then one thing leads to another and you've punctured both your tires and then you puncture your spare tubes and you slash a tire and then you're walking around, and you
0: break a rim. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, just to finish up, have you any more bike packing in the horizon? I know Pandemic hit twenty twenty, that kind of unleashed your inner Sven Tuft and you went bike pack and exploring BC Epic one thousand and some other epic style adventures. Anything else like that on the horizon?
1: Yeah, I mean every year I try to do a couple cool ones, um, whether they're local or abroad. Um, Badlands, I guess, technically is probably like I guess kind of bikepacking, but
0: also You doing it this year? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to sit on here and I'll get it torn out of me.
1: <laughs> so I'm going to do Badlands. I've got um, Across Andes is on my radar as well, which is another kind of ultra. That like, so these things are completely new to me. I've never done anything like that. I've done individual stuff, but I do have planned. Um, I want to establish an FKT or whatever. Like, I want to establish a route across Vancouver Island from uh, tip to tail. So Port Hardy is the northernmost city or town on the island. And Victoria, obviously, is the capital on the southernmost, so I want to do an off-road. I've gone north on the road and off-road a few times, but I want to go north to south and um, establish that. I think it's about 650K, and I'll do that this summer, and we'll we'll do a little kind of video that goes along with it, and i hopefully build a little bit, I don't know, hype's the right word, but some excitement and just kind of create something, because it's such a beautiful area, and... It's kind of crazy that something like this doesn't exist. And with the excitement people have for these kind of ultra endurance type things, like BC Epic being one of them, like that, it's crazy. And they get dozens of people doing it every year now. If something like this just seems like it makes so much sense.
0: Yeah. I had, uh, you should actually listen back. I had Leo Wilcox, who won the female category in Badlands on the podcast a few months back. And like, she's absolutely tapped. Like, her, I can't remember her finishing time, but it was insane. Uh, she was saying she got about 15 minutes sleep for the course of it. She rode until she couldn't ride anymore. and She's like, okay, I'm going to fall asleep on the bike. So I'm going to stop and have a sleep. She didn't bring a bivy bag, sleeping bag, nothing like that with her. So she just got off the bike, didn't even take her helmet off, lay down in the middle of the desert, set her alarm clock for 45 minutes, woke up like seven minutes later and started riding again. And she's like, I felt energized after that seven minutes. I'm like, I don't know if I want a part of your world. This is a sadomasochist world.
1: Yeah, that was um, kind of like the uh, BC epic when I did it. I, uh, I was 24, like 28 hours in or something like that, 30 hours in. And so go, I started at 9 p.m., rode through the night, all the way through the next day, and then into the next night. I think it was like midnight or 1 a.m., And I had an idea in my mind of like this place I wanted to sleep. And um, man, I was, like she said, I was falling asleep on the bike. It's where you're just, and anybody can relate to this fatigue. It's, you know, think of Sunday afternoon after a hard day of training or something. You've got the sun kind of on your face. You're sitting on the couch watching TV and you're just dozing like heavy, heavy eyes. You snap out of it and kind of pop back up with no recollection of how long you've just dozed off for. And I'm coasting downhill. It's, you know, maybe four degrees Celsius. It's chilly. Got my jersey, like my uh, jacket unzipped, trying to like keep the cold air on my face. It should be enough to keep you awake. You know, you're descending it. Like you need to be sharp. It's the middle of the night. You'd have just a halo of light. Like nothing's safe about this. And like, I remember I dozed off maybe half a dozen times before. Like, okay, I need to stop. Like, okay, I'm going to go one more kilometer. And if I don't find this point, Cause I, would initially planned to sleep in a tunnel cause I didn't want to like worry about rain, but the tunnel had like a couple rats the size of my forearm. So it was occupied. So we just kept going. <laughs> um, and, uh, I think in the, like, the very last minute I came up onto this sort of, um, this shelter that had, uh, a nice solid, like concrete picnic table level ground. Um, and I packed my air mattress and sleep bag for that exact occasion. And it was same thing, but I was so past blowing like Lyle's just a freak when it comes to that stuff she's like wrote the book on ultra endurance like yeah I set my alarm for an hour and at first I thought I would have had struggle falling asleep just you know being kind of like revved up I closed my eyes and it was like a one hour long blink like a dreamless sleep I closed my eyes my <laughs> arm went off and just like any good endurance or ultra endurance person will tell you you know you wake up crack a can of Red Bull at two in the morning and get on with it.
0: Oh, it's great. There's a brilliant Instagram page. Uh, I'll find it and send it on to you. It's like ultra cyclist memes or something. There's like dudes sleeping in dumpsters and stuff, and it's brilliant.
1: Oh, yeah, so that was, yeah, I had about an hour of like genuine sleep. And then I uh, there was a ferry crossing and I slept for another 20 or 30 minutes. And a guy would kind of like poke me as like the ferry was docking. Hey, boat's docking. You got to get off. <laughs> got up. So yeah, about an hour and a half over 57 hours. So I was, yeah, properly hallucinating by the end of that one.
0: The glamour, that's why you do it. Yeah,
1: well, if it's not for the fame, it's for the fortune, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Rob, it's been a blast. Thanks very much for joining me on the Roadman Podcast. Cool.
1: Thanks so much, man. It was great to chat.